Today we want to continue our exposition of First Corinthians. We started two weeks ago, I believe it was. We had a break in between. We come now to verse 10 of this tremendously exciting book, revelation that God has given us. In this section, Paul makes a strong appeal for unity within the church. I've given it a subtitle, The Problem with Preacher Preferences in the Church. Having identified himself as the author and giving his credentials as an official called apostle of Jesus Christ and reminding the Corinthians of their high calling in Christ as members of the incredible body of Christ, Paul now turns to deal with the first major problem in the church. And that's beginning at verse 10. Verse 10 reads, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, in the same mind and in the same judgment. If you look at this passage carefully, you'll see that Paul's exhortation is threefold. First of all, he prays that they will all agree. Literally, the translation reads that you will say the same thing. You do not have a spirit of variance. In context, he says that concerning, in reference to preachers or leaders of the church. He wants them to have the same agreement concerning church leaders. Secondly, he says, he's exhorting them that there be no divisions in the church. No divisions in the church. The word means splits, breaches, or as we say today, clicks. Paul is praying that none of these things be present in the church at Corinth. Now he says, here is what I'm praying for, but rather, it's a contrast, that they be complete. They're praying that the Corinthian believers may be complete. The word means perfectly joined together. In context, it means perfectly agreeing with one another concerning the leaders of the church. The opposite of this being complete, the cliques, the splits, the breaches, the divisions. He doesn't want that. Those things are not in the will of God. And so we know right away that if any of these things occur in the, amongst the people of God, God is not involved in it at all. It's the devil who is at work. When we have splits, cliques, divisions, or whatever, it's not God. It's the devil. He says, further, in the same mind and same judgment. I want you to see the focus all the time on agreement, unity. The mind within here refers to the things believed. He wants us, he wants the Corinthians to believe the same thing. Now in context, he's not talking about doctrine as much as he's talking about the views of the leaders of the church, as we'll see in a moment. The things to be believed, the judgment is a display outwardly of the things we believe. So he's saying, I want you to manifest unity in what you're thinking 
concerning the leaders of the church, showing the same disposition based on a common understanding. This is a tremendous passage, and it shows what the heart of God is for his people. Oneness, unity, not bickering, not fighting, but unity. Now, Paul talks about this unity in Ephesians 4. Just let me read it to show you his heart for this concept of unity. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is how unity comes about and demonstrated. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the phrase, being diligent, being aggressive in this area. Same word is used in talks about the study to show yourself approved unto God. Be diligent is the idea. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that Paul is again pleading for to the people of Corinth, members of the incredible body at Corinth. That's the unity he's pleading for, and that's the unity God wants amongst his people. But then he goes on, he says, look, look very carefully now. Paul is basing his appeal to the Corinthians on his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means when he says, I am appealing to you on the basis of the authority of Jesus Christ. And he is an apostle who's been called, who's been sent based on that authority. He's representing Jesus Christ here. Simply saying, I appeal to you on behalf of Christ. Be unified. That's his appeal. He's referring to the authority as the son of God and head of the church. Jesus Christ wants unity in the church. And this is a major concern that Paul has because divisions is what the enemy uses to hinder the work of God and cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed amongst his own people by their behavior. And so Paul is pleading for practical, observable unity in the church. He's saying that their factions are causing the name of Christ to be blasphemed and disgraced among the pagans. That's the idea. As I mentioned, the word divisions is an important word in this text. In fact, it was used by the Greeks in their culture to describe political parties. Now, you know what political parties can do to a nation. The division. We see it right here. We see it in the United States of America. Paul is saying... That's what's happening in the church at Corinth. In fact, he's indicating that this kind of religious, quote-unquote, Christian division is worse than divisions brought about by politicians because the name of God is disgraced. 
It's the word that we get schism from. Some of you say schism. That's, the, that's what he's talking about. This was one of the major problems in the church at Corinth. And as we'll see, it was based on at least seven issues. One, it was based on their personal preference for certain leaders and their ability to preach. Secondly, it was based on their pride and jealousy over spiritual gifts. Thirdly, it was based on their recognition of economic categories between rich and poor. That comes out even in the Lord's Supper. Fourthly, it was based on their prejudice over social rank, slave and free. Fourth, or rather fifth, it is based on their racial pride, Jew and Gentile. And sixth, it was based on their jealousy or pride over marital status, whether they were married or unmarried. And seventh, it was based on their pride over intellectual status and ability. All of these issues were the root causes for the visions within the church, and Paul deals with them here. The sad thing to say is that these things are still in the church. By the way, let me say, you know, we have, hear a lot of people saying, boy, we should go back and have a New Testament church. Well, I'm not sure Corinth would be the kind of church I would like to be a pastor of or a member of. They had some problems, some real problems. Paul wants to teach them that their faith in Christ must make a difference in the way they live, in the way they relate to one another. That's Paul's emphasis throughout this epistle. You'll see that one of the reasons why some people were actually dying because of what they did at the Lord's Supper was simply because they weren't paying proper respect to the poor in the assembly. That means a lot to God. A carnal party spirit had developed. And now the name of Christ is being blasphemed. We'll see that in a moment. And this is worse than even a political party spirit. When we have a Christian party spirit, so-called. Notice what he says. He now explains it. For reason. I have been informed. I have been informed. This isn't telling of tales. This isn't gossip here. We said the moment. Information. I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's or Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. The problem is disunity and friction among the people of God at Corinth. Quarrels, this same word is listed in Galatians 5.20 among the fruit of the flesh. It's an act of the flesh. It's an evidence of carnal fleshly behavior. It characterizes angry and selfish people in Galatians. It certainly should not be present amongst the people of God. That's Paul's emphasis. Now, Chloe's people passed on or brought him this information to the, uh, to the apostle. Now, it's really not certain who Chloe is or who a person was. There are different opinions on that. Some say that she was a businesswoman with slaves who had a church in her house. Others say that they were these, the people 
were slaves who were once, but they were finally freed, and now they came to see Paul. They knew Paul through his visits, and so they could bring on the information as what was happening in, a, in their boss's home. Others say that Chloe, or their people rather, was not really closely connected with the Corinthian church at all. But simply they heard about it and wanted to tell Paul what was going on. Paul mentions them as a source, though, of his information in order to shame the Corinthians, if this is so. In other words, he's saying, even outsiders are aware of the splits, the divisions in the church. And so Paul is sort of giving a backhand, as we'll see, rebuke to the leaders of the church. You can see we did this in a minute. But I personally believe that they did not have full information of what was going on. I say this because later on in the epistle, Paul says he only partly believes it. He says that in chapter 11. And then later on in chapter 16, when Stephanus and Fortinus and Achaeus came and refreshed Paul's spirit concerning him, that the things were going on, he said things are not as bad as he thought they were. So it seems as though he had some information, but he didn't have it complete, is the idea. Because you see, the Corinthians wrote to the Apostle Paul about some problems. You'll see this in chapter 7. And they asked him about certain things. They asked him about marriage. They asked him about eating things offered to idols. They asked him about how women and men should be dressed in assemblies. But they never said anything about the splits in the church. They didn't ask this. Paul is the one who brings it up based on the information I'd received. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 5 later on, it has been declared unto me. It is reported commonly. They didn't bring it up. The leaders didn't bring it up. And all of the questions they asked, they didn't ask Paul to deal with the problem of factions. He says all of this before he refers to their letter showing that the leaders of the church did not reveal this situation to him. And we're going to see why. Because they were part of the division themselves. And so this is a sort of a backhand rebuke by the apostle on the situation to the leaders. They failed to report an extremely severe evil that could potentially destroy the church. He's going to talk about this in chapter 3. And as I was going through this chapter and seeing all of this, my prayer was that God would help us as leaders to be sure that we deal with these kinds of sins before they come open in the church. Before the name of Christ is blasphemed amongst the unbelievers because of what we fail to do in getting things right. In fact, when we come to chapter 5, you can see that Paul gave them a lot of trouble for not dealing with immorality in the assembly. This is a serious letter. But then he goes on to give some details about what he heard. 
verse 12. He says, now I mean this. He says, all right, I told you I heard something from Clodius. This is what I heard. That each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And I am of Christ. That was the cause, core reason for the splits. Preference of preachers, I call it. The party spirit came about as a result of personal like or dislike or favoritism concerning the preachers of the church, the leaders of the church. And boy, there's some heavy hitters here. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Jesus Christ. But notice, and this is the important thing, it all has to do with personal preference. Like or dislike. Not doctrinal. Nothing concerning doctrine. But just personal preference. And it's splitting the church. In other words, the party's spirit was a manifestation of selfishness and pride of the Corinthians. The Paul party was probably those who were saved under his ministry and were attracted to his salvation by faith alone. I don't have to do anything else but believe. You hear that today, don't you? They like that with Paul. They had some freedom in Paul. Paul was a liberal amongst all of these. They liked him. He wasn't as legalistic as the Judaizers who said you have to keep this law, keep that law, do this, do that. Paul was a liberal. They liked Paul. But rather than thanking them for preferring him, he condemns them for their pride and selfishness. He goes to great lengths, in fact, to chastise them for choosing him. The Apollos party were probably those who like oratory and what I call motivational type speakers. You know, people who are really good with words. And when they stand up, they're so charismatic. I mean, you just look at them and you fall to the V. They could say anything. But you're hearing the message. All you do is looking at his nice suit. The way he uses words. The way he comes across. I like him. He wouldn't drop his speaker like Pastor Lee. <laughs> Apollos seems to be in the beginning, he had a lot of flourish, but little content. You remember Aquila and Priscilla had to take him aside. They listened to him. Boy, he had the words. But boy, he was short on content. And so this husband and wife team took him aside and they put him right. But they liked Apollos because he, he just, he was suave, man. He was that guy. Something like me. <laughs> Paul, on the other hand, was strong in content. But later on, you'll see that he was criticized because he was weak in bodily appearance. And he didn't look good. He didn't dress good. In fact, he said he was contemptible in his speech. Talking about Paul. 
So they had this contrast, this fight between this charismatic preacher and this ugly looking. That's right, some people even think he had a hunchback. We don't want this man. He's too heavy. And not only that, he's too ugly. Not only that, he can't talk good. Something like me. Now he goes on to the Cephas part. Notice he doesn't say Peter. He says Cephas. He said Peter was the name afterwards. Cephas was the name before he placed faith in Christ. In other words, Cephas is the Jewish name. And so these were probably the Judaizers, the one who wanted to stay to the law, to be legal in their Christian living. They favored Cephas because he was known as the apostle of the circumcision. In fact, you know, that Paul had to reprimand him because he wouldn't eat with Gentile believers when the Jewish believers came to Galatia. You remember that? You see, he was the conservative. Today, some we probably call him the fundamental group. That's the fundamentalists. They had laws, boy. You had to dress this way. You can't go here. You can't go there. That mind you anything at all. So they're like Cephas. But now, boy, the group that really thought that they were on the top of the mountain was the Christ group. I am a Christ. Isn't that pious? They probably saw themselves as the most holy or orthodox than all the others. We got everything right, man. We foreign Christ. We ain't foreign no man. We foreign Christ. They had made Jesus Christ into sect figure themselves and they were just as bad or perhaps even worse than the others because they were using the name of Christ in vain in other words that's not what the name of Christ was to represent Paul says that's the reason you're fighting you're splitting up the body of Christ over men do you think that goes on today it has been demonstrated that the majority of people who leave churches leave either something because of the preacher rather than because of doctrine. Still going on. And those who leave are so proud of themselves. But then Paul distances himself from his own self-professed disciples in a very direct and forward way. He condemns them rather than commend them. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God. I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one would say you were baptized in my name. This is an amazing statement here. Concerning the providence of God. So Paul is saying here, has Christ, the true Savior, been cut up into pieces? That's what the word actually means, divided. Has he been cut up? Are some of you using his arm, the other his leg, the other his head? Has he been cut up for you? Was Paul, who is a lowly servant of Christ, the one who hung on the cross for you? You see, that's what's happened when we put man before Jesus Christ. We demeaning Jesus. 
Were you baptized in the name of Paul as your Lord and Master? Baptism was very significant. It shows who was Lord of your life. Were you baptized into the ownership of Paul? Or were you baptized into the ownership of Jesus Christ? The answer, of course, Jesus Christ. It was Christ who redeemed you on the cross, he is saying, not me. It was to Christ that you were consecrated when you were baptized. How dare that you even imply that I would stoop to the level of claiming such a high and lofty honor. No one, especially me, would try to take the glory away from Jesus Christ. But that's what they were doing. And that's what we do whenever we divide over a preacher rather than keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Paul is emphasizing the absolute absurdity of the idea and shows how it actually demeans Christ and glorifies Paul. Paul would have nothing of it. The answer to all of these questions then therefore is the resounding no. And then he gives thanks to God for in God, in the providence of God, not allowing him to baptize too many of the Christians. Isn't that amazing? Yet we have preachers today what they boast in is how many people they baptize. Paul is thanking God that God kept him from baptizing too many of the Corinthians. He now sees that this was in the plan of God all along in order to allow him to be able to make his case against these division makers, this party spirit in Corinth that would put him on a pedestal. He thanks God that they have no basis for doing that. And they doing it is something they have concocted in their own minds. Now he fills in some details. He said, now I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. Now Stephanus, as you learn in chapter 16, was one of the three church members who brought a letter to the church of Paul at Ephesus. We'll talk about that later on. But notice what's happening in the text. Paul had a hard time even remembering who he did in fact baptize. And he explains why in the next verse. He says, for, here's a reason why. I didn't baptize so many people. Here's the reason why I can't even remember who it was I baptized. For Christ did not send me to baptize. But he sent me to preach the gospel. He sent me to proclaim, to proclaim the, the gospel, the good news, the evangel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the, Christ, the cross of Christ would not be void. He starts to lead off into another direction before he does so. Paul makes an appointment. Now, by the way, he's, no, he's, he's not in any way demeaning or lessening the importance of baptism, mind you. He isn't, he isn't doing that. In fact, you go to Romans 6, you'll see that he deals with baptism and he uses that as a core passage for explaining what it means when we actually are identified with Jesus Christ. He places a high premium on baptism. But however, right now in this particular passage, he wants to make another point. By the way, another point is here. Many people teach that baptism is a sacrament that gives us grace. 
If that were true, Paul wouldn't say this about baptism if it provided grace. But be that as it may, Paul wants to emphasize his unique, special, and authoritative calling as an apostle. He was called specifically and especially to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his call. He was keeping the first thing first. He wasn't saying baptism was of no importance. No, no, no. But he's saying, as for me, the most important thing in my life is to accomplish that thing, that purpose for which Christ called me. What was it? To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's keeping the first things first. Peter did, Peter did the same thing. In Acts chapter 6, you remember right after the founding of the church, a problem arose concerning taking care of the social and material needs of the widows. So Peter gathered the church together, and this is what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, the task of caring for the widows of the church. Now that's an important job. That's a vital ministry. But Paul says, that's not my top priority. He says in verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation. It wasn't that caring for the widows was insignificant. No, no, that's vitally important. But Peter's saying, that's not my calling. My calling is to minister the word of God, to spend time in prayer. Peter, like Paul, was committed to keeping the first thing first as far as his ministry was and calling was concerned. I know how we should do this today, not only in the church as an organization, but in our own life. Because this is the vital biblical principle that has gotten lost in the operation and organization of the church today. This is especially true when it comes to pastors. Pastors don't have one main thing as far as the congregation is concerned. Everything is the main thing for them. People have called pastors up in the middle of the night to come and close the window because they couldn't get it closed. Why call a pastor? Because he's my pastor. Pastors have been called to go to the airport to pick up my daughter. Why? Because my son on the beach or my son doing something else. Why call the pastor? Because he's the pastor. Pastors are seen today as a one-man band when it comes to work and ministry in the church. And they're forced to do what others are gifted to do just because he's a paid full-time employee of the church. And once you're an employee, you're supposed to do everything. That happens in ministries. Somebody is willing, well then, you do it. You've got the gift, you've got the ability, but boy, i got other things to do. Let them do it. Yeah, I'm gifted to do it. But i got more important things to do in my business and whatnot. Paul wanted to emphasize that if God has given us a ministry, we should be true to that ministry and let nothing or no one else in any way cause us 
to get off track. That's why my ministry, I believe, is ministering the Word of God. Everything else is secondary in my life, except my wife. Because she's the one who tells me what to preach. <laughs> Paul then moves easily into a deeply intense description of the nature of biblical preaching and how it can be diluted and made of none effect by man's attempt to glorify himself. Because that's what is going on. They were comparing these preachers against one another. And Paul now is going to preach about the nature of preaching. And what is at the core of it? He contrasts the power of the gospel with the weakness of man's wisdom and oratory. He says in verse 18, 4. Now this indicates a reason why he was not sent to proclaim the gospel. In cleverness of speech. You see, that's what the Greeks especially were looking for. They wanted to see somebody who was a technician when it came to sermons. Who really knew how to put them together. Matching an illustration with every point. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's the word of God. Notice, the word, that's the Greek word, logos. It has to do with content, not rhetoric. That's what's being emphasized, content here. Paul is saying that that is what was emphasized in his preaching. Content, not rhetoric, not words to make it look good. In other words, he places content above delivery. He places the message above the messenger. Oh, how we have distorted that today. Some of the largest crowds today go after people who have a wonderful messenger, but a terrible message. There is no gospel, Paul wants to say here, without the cross. No matter how eloquently it is preached, if the cross isn't in it, if Christ isn't in it, there's no message. Oh yeah, you got a pretty, handsome, good-looking, charismatic preacher, but you got no message. Paul says this message or word is foolishness to those who are perishing. Notice he doesn't say it's foolishness, full stop. He says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's only those who are on their way to an eternity without Christ who looks at the gospel and says it doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. Again, I say the emphasis is on the content of the message, not on the manner in which the message is preached. In fact, Paul is implying that the reason why some preachers use their own made-up cleverness of speech when they preach is their attempt to hide or cover the core content of the gospel. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. That cross speaks of shame. That cross speaks of humiliation. That cross speaks of blood. That cross speaks of death. That cross speaks of sacrifice, even to the Christian. In fact, if it's one thing that has been lost in the Christian life, is the concept of taking up the cross and following Jesus Christ. Very few Christians know anything about sacrifice when it comes to discipleship. The emphasis today, I'm a child of the king. I'm supposed to ride around in a Lexus and have a Rolex. 
I supposed to be able to take it easy and let the other people there do the gifts and do the ministry. You know, they ain't as important as I am. You see, a segment of the Corinthian church prided themselves in rhetoric and logic. And the cross of Christ, the sacrifice, did not fit into the picture. Notice he says, those who are perishing. In context, they are describing those who prefer human wisdom of words, human cleverness of preach, rather than the doctrine or the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the reason why they are perishing. It's because they reject that message. To put it bluntly, without cleverness of speech in this text, means that they are on their way to hell because they reject the preaching of the cross and the fact that Jesus Christ died for them on the cross of Calvary and to follow him involves sacrifice as well. And he says, but a strong contrast here to those who are on the way of perishing is a big contrast now towards those who are on their way to die in a Christless grave. The word of the cross, the logos of the cross, the content of the cross, the message of the cross is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. And we enter a new teaching here. Not a new teaching, but one that we'll develop later on. Salvation is both past, present, and future. Some people only look at salvation as past. I received Jesus Christ 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Therefore, I am saved. That's it because of what I did back then. Well, the Bible teaches us about what we call present salvation, being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. How do you know that something really happened back then? Well, look at your life right now. Is anything happening right now? If there's no transformation, if there's no power in your life over sin, you better check back and see what you did anything at all back then. Because we are being saved. And then there's coming a day when we'll be taken from the very presence of sin. Past salvation has to do with the penalty. Present has to do with the power of sin. Future has to do with being removed from the very presence of sin. Paul wants these people to check their lives. You say you are being saved? Is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ being worked out in your life today? Paul is teaching There are only two kinds of people in the congregation right now. Only two kinds of people in this place right now. Only two kinds. Either you are perishing or you are being saved. Only two kinds of people. No in between. No purgatory here. Sorry. We don't do purgatory. Two kinds of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In which category? Are you? It all depends upon what you've done with the cross of Jesus Christ. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word, the word of the cross. 
The fact that without the cross there's no salvation. The fact that it was only Jesus Christ who was qualified to die on the cross for us. So we bow, we worship in his presence today, thanking him for his great salvation, so full, so free. Thank you for the promise of your word, that it will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it forth this morning in this congregation. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.